Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hollywood's best examples of the boss from hell. And probably your experience at work is not going to be as bad as Milton's was, but I'm willing to bet that the majority of you have at least some exposure to or experience with injustice, maybe at the workplace, maybe in your family. But at some point in your life, chances are you have been treated less than fairly and it drove you crazy. Anybody have an experience like that in your life where it was just like, this is wrong. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Now, Milton, of course, worked his issues out by setting his company's building on fire. I am not advocating that. I don't want any of you who are planning to set your company on fire to do that. But it's an illustration of just how far you can push someone before something snaps. <clears throat> you know, according to a recent Zogby poll, they say around 42% of Americans are reporting that they don't like their boss. Of, those, of that group, 18% say that they barely tolerate their boss, and 5% of people say they absolutely cannot stand their boss. The sight of their boss makes them feel violent. According to another survey conducted by the conference board, listen to what they said, just over 50% of Americans do not like their job. They have a very, very low feeling of job satisfaction. And I wonder if that somehow uh, applies to you. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning dreading the idea of going to work tomorrow, that tomorrow morning you're going to get up and another Monday starts. How many of you actually love Monday? Like another work week is starting. You can't wait to do the thing you were born to do. Probably a lot of you, if you're not in my job, I, I love my job. Believe it or not, I really love it. But if, if you have a job where you just groan on Monday morning, then I, I, think, I think this may apply to you. Not everybody's happy where they are. And the question is, how are the followers of Christ supposed to bear up under a situation, especially in the workplace, where they're just really less than happy? Now, the passage we're going to read this morning, I don't know if you guys could do this switch real quick in the back there, but can we flash up 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And the passage we're going to read this morning has to do with slaves and masters. And if you recall, last week we began a series talking about how Christians are called to be people who show respect to figures of authority in their lives. Even when it's difficult as a human being to do so, God has commanded it of us, and it's a really hard teaching to accept, but if you accept it, you'll see something of God's purposes in it. Listen to what this passage says. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man or woman bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you, would, you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, in fairness, I should acknowledge that this passage is actually addressing slaves as the primary audience. And I understand that in in the United States, that is not a neutral word. The word slave carries for us Americans a very dark history and a lot of very dark imagery. And so I need to just acknowledge right off the bat that slavery as it was in the Roman Empire in the first century when the New Testament was being written bears substantial differences from the slavery that we saw in the early history of the United States. Now, that's not to say that that the Bible in any way affirms slavery or says that slavery in any form is a good uh, state of human affairs. It isn't. Slavery is ugly in all its expressions. But we've got to be careful to understand this teaching directed at slaves in the context of the very slaves who are first hearing and receiving these words. In the first century Roman Empire, a lot of people actually chose slavery. And I want you to think about the days before high schools and universities where a lot of people were born in the peasant class. And they had to basically figure out, how am I going to do something on this earth that someone else will give me money for? And that was quite a challenge. And a great number of people, were, they ended up just traveling from place to place trying to figure out, what can I do to get my next meal, to eat? And a lot of people realize that if they became a slave under somebody's household, that is preferable to just wandering the streets trying to make a fast buck day after day. At least you would come under the protection of somebody's household. You would have a place to sleep, three meals a day, and it would be hard work, but it was, for many people, a better choice than what was there in front of them. For a lot of other people, because many slaves were paid a small wage, they could save that up. And for a great many slaves, it became a pathway to Roman citizenship for a lot of people who otherwise would never have had a chance to come under the authority of Rome citizenship and all its attendant privileges. So I need you to understand that for the slaves hearing Peter's original words, their experience was different than the slaves in early American history. Now, that, 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 again, is not to say slavery is okay, but do you understand how they would be processing all these words? Now, on top of that, you also need to know that it's estimated by some scholars that in the early Roman Empire, in the urban centers, as many as one-third of all the people in any city were actually slaves. So if one out of every three people could relate to the teaching of this passage, it was an exceedingly important thing that Peter was doing Because a lot of people who were becoming Christians began their life as a Christian as a slave. And they were hearing this message in the gospel that somehow in Christ they were free and they had hope and they were a new creation. But how they exercised this newfound freedom in Christ would have a great deal to do with how the gospel was received throughout the Roman Empire. If these slaves heard the word freedom and revolted against their masters and one-third of the Roman population just bolted, the entire economy would collapse and people would see the gospel and Christianity not as a good new movement, but as the greatest threat to the stability of the Roman Empire that had ever presented itself. 
And so Peter is telling them, listen, I know you may not like your station in life, but you must wear this newfound freedom with wisdom because your witness as a bearer of the gospel of Jesus Christ has everything to do with how you conduct yourself where you begin this new life. That doesn't mean you will end your life there, but where you begin is where your responsibility as a Christian and as a gospel bearer begins. Are you with me so far? And so he gives a couple teachings to people who find themselves as slaves. Now, from this point on, because I realize there's no actual legal slavery in the United States, there is a one-for-one correlation to anything in your life experience. But I think it is not unfair to extend this teaching to the context of employees and employers. And some of you are nodding because you realize your, your job kind of feels like some form of modern slavery. You don't like it. You can't get out. And I understand that. But we're going to extend this teaching to say, wherever masters is presented in this text, we'll at least begin wrapping our minds around it by thinking about our workplace and those who have authority over us in that setting. And having said that, he addresses a number of different kinds of of situations. The first is if you find yourself working under a good master's authority, he gives this word of teaching. I command you, Peter says, to submit to that master with all respect. I command you to submit to that master with all respect. Now, I've got to say something to you because not everybody has a bad boss. In fact, 17% of Americans say that they consider their boss a personal friend. I hope that the staff at our church would be able to at least fall under that 17%. But I, I know this, that some people do have a good boss. And something funny happens when you have a good boss. It divides the world into two kinds of people. One kind honors that good boss, and the other kind takes advantage of that good boss. Which kind are you? If you've got one of these bosses who's very open-minded, very cool to work for, very lenient, do you work the angles? Do you stretch and push the envelope? Do you see how much you can get away with? Do you make a lot of presumptions? Do you take those two-hour lunches and stroll in 15 minutes late and sort of rubber stamp the projects that come your way without really thinking about them? How do you conduct yourself when you have the good fortune to work under somebody who's a decent human being to you? How do you respond to that situation? Do you take a few extra vacation days and personal days and all that? And, and I think the teaching of Scripture is simply this. If you have the good fortune of serving under a good boss... You must do your very best to give that person the best that you have. It is not just strategic for your career. It is an issue of your obedience to Jesus Christ that you give that good, good boss the very best effort you know how to give. That means you don't take advantage of them. You work under them the way you would want others to work under you. You show loyalty. You give your best effort. And you know what you're doing when you do that? You are reinforcing and validating their difficult decision to be a good boss. You know, I'm a boss over at least eight people now. And, and, you know, I'm having a massive power trip and I'm, you know, abusing that authority all the time. I'm just kidding. But, of course, I I have to make a choice. Am I going to be a decent boss or a jerk? And every morning I can make that choice in a fresh way. I hope I've made the choice to be a good boss. And I guess you can ask the staff privately, buy them a drink and ask them, and and we'll see. But if a boss makes that difficult decision, they're taking a risk because everyone knows that when you're nice to people, half the people will take advantage of you. When you give that good boss everything you've got, you reinforce that decision 
to be a good boss. And you reward them for that, and you show them that there are people who can be trusted when you're gracious to them. Now, that's a pretty big no-brainer of a teaching, and I think most of us are not having any problem receiving that word so far. So you're like, all right, boring, move on. Well, let me move on to the part that might stick in your gut a little bit. This is the part that's going to make me a little unpopular, and I'm going to just give you this disclaimer right now. None of this is my idea. In fact, i got to tell you, I don't even like this idea very much. At first, I read it, I'm like, I can't preach this. I cannot preach it with a straight face because I'm not so sure. I'm feeling it, God. And I wrestle with this text just straight for two weeks. I'm like, what am I supposed to say about this? Because what I think God is saying, and here's the amazing thing. He says, let me turn my attention now to those people who find themselves working under not so great a boss. Under that Lumberg type boss, that's the guy in the movie, that boss who is just the worst possible nightmare to have authority over my life. And that's the boss I got stuck with. What of my situation? What does God have to say to me? And the astounding thing is that when Peter shifts his attention to these unfortunate slaves, he does not change the teaching one bit. It's like he's stuck on a skipping record. He goes, oh, for you guys too, here's the command of God. Submit to even that harsh master with all respect. And you read that and you just kind of go, I don't get it. That kind of teaching makes God seem a little naive, like he's not paying attention. It makes God seem a little bit arbitrary and random, doesn't it? Like, God, doesn't justice even matter to you? Don't you care that these two slaves have a very different profile and a different life experience? Don't you care that the guy under the harsh master has a miserable day every single day? Doesn't that matter to you? And God, without batting an eye, says, yes, I absolutely understand. And yes, I absolutely care about that person's plight. But my word remains the same to both slaves. Respect your master with all respect. Submit to them. Because somehow in both scenarios, through the same obedience, God will work out his good purposes. Now, I've got to unpack that a little bit, and I will bring you through the same journey of understanding that I came through so that you can make your peace with this very difficult teaching. He says, suffer under such masters with all respect. And my number one question is, how do I do that? How do I do that? I think the key to understanding comes in verse 19 where he says, look at, look at what it says. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Why? Because he is conscious of God. Now, I've got to tell you right now, when I imagine myself under this scenario, and it's not just idle speculation. I worked for four years in corporate America under who I believe is one of the most foul bosses I've ever seen. I just could not handle this person. I would come home and tell my wife about the frustrations I was having with this person. And she, you know, she doesn't work at my office. She doesn't care. She's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it was miserable for me. And I, I got to tell you, I relate experientially to what it feels like to be stuck under the authority of a very bad boss. And God says the only hope at the end of that tunnel is if you will understand that you must be conscious of God or this teaching will be impossible to accept. So the, the, the next question logically is, what does it mean 
to be conscious of God in such a difficult situation. When God puts me in an impossible scenario and says, now do the impossible thing, what does it mean to be conscious of God? Well, let me unpack that and tell you, at least on a few levels, here's what it means. One is, it means that you see the bigger picture. For starters, I think you have to zoom out when you're in a difficult situation. Because if you're fixated on the little piece of the situation you can see, if you approach the whole situation only from your vantage point, it will every single time come out in the final analysis to be a negative thing. Put another way, when you look at suffering from the point of view of the person doing the suffering, it's never a good thing, is it? It's so hard to see the redemptive value in my suffering. But if you come to my office for counseling, I could find all kinds of redemptive value in your suffering. Some of you I know have been frustrated by that. You come for, for encouragement and support and pity, and you get, well, I think the Lord has a purpose in your pain. You don't want to hear that. When you're in pain, what good could you possibly see? And so God says, look, I get that. That's why in order to find meaning in your suffering, you've got to zoom out. Now, if you're a photographer, you understand what that means, that how wide your angle of lens is, that that matters because it, it determines how much more of the picture you see. Think about this for a second. If, if the lights were off, you'd see that that's a taxi cab, right? A little taxi cab in the corner. I could show you just that one little frame of reference and give you eight hours of stories about that one little taxi cab. But the truth is that that taxi cab exists if you zoom out in a much wider context. It's a New York City taxi cab, and that context means everything, even for the effect that that taxi cab has on its surroundings and the surroundings have on that taxi cab. I think that's an important illustration to teach us that when you look at your situation only from the perspective of you, it's the same old tired analysis over and over. Well, it pretty much sucks for me. Whoopie-doo. Every day you look at it from a, from a different angle, but it's the same analysis. This situation is bad for me, bad for me, bad for me. But what if you zoomed out to see a wider perspective? Could it change the picture of the meaning and value that this suffering has if you see more? Let me illustrate it another way. Think about how you view me as a pastor, right? Everybody in this room right now has an opinion of me as a pastor. Okay, let's... Don't even deny it. You all have an opinion of me, and that opinion is being formed and changed and evolving every second I speak, or maybe even every second I choose not to speak. Your approval rating of me goes up or down, right? Now, now listen, as you evaluate me as a pastor, let's be real honest about something. Your opinion of me is formed on the basis of a very narrow band of experience, isn't it? In fact, you probably only think about me at those points in your life where my life intersects your life. How many of you are at the office Monday morning going, I wonder what Pastor Dave is doing right now. Give me a break. Come on. You don't care, right? And it's not, this is not me feeling sorry for myself. It's being, me being truthful. You have opinions of me that are formed in a very, very limited engagement where our worlds intersect. But the truth is, there is a lot of my life that has nothing to do with y'all. There are huge areas of my life where, like, when you don't see me, I'm still alive. Stuff is happening to me. I'm doing stuff. And here's the, the reason I'm saying that. The people who are with me in that other part of my life have a very different basis of analyzing me. My wife looks at me very differently than you look at me. 
What am I trying to say here? When you've got a miserable boss, all you ever see in that human being is a miserable boss. That's all they ever are to you because that's the only time your lives ever cross paths is when you're the worker, they're the boss, and they're the big fat jerk, and you're the poor victim, and that's all you'll ever see, and that's all you'll ever analyze. But when you zoom out and see as God sees, if you're conscious of God, at least it means this, that you'll realize God looks at that miserable boss and he sees a whole human being. He sees somebody that he bled and died on a cross for. He sees somebody who is of such incalculable value to him that he would have died for that person. He can see past the big jerk to somebody he has been trying to reach all their lives. Do you understand the difference that zooming out makes? Is if you only see the way something affects you, you will never move on to see a greater meaning in anything. Everything will be all about you. Another way of saying it is, you will take so many God moments and reduce them to simple me moments. Do you get that? But when you zoom out to a wider angle, you realize the same person you've already boxed in to one little role in this world is a whole person. And God is writing a much bigger story in their lives than just you and your narrow experience of them. That's the beginning of enduring suffering, is to realize even your tormentor has a story. Even the person making your life a living hell has a backstory that matters to God. And if you could be conscious of God, you would realize God has plans for this person. Here's another angle you can look at it from. There's an old familiar saying I've used many times, and that is that hurt people hurt people. What? Do you get that? Hurt people end up hurting people. Now, that doesn't excuse a few out there who are just flat-out evil. You know, everybody knows at least one person who there's no excuse. They're just evil. They love to watch the world burn like the Joker in, in Dark Knight, right? It's no redeeming, right? But there are a lot of people out there who are causing pain, but they bear their own scars. So many tormentors had a tormentor. They learned how to give pain because it's the only way they know how to make the world make sense. This is not some, some worldview that includes a, a glorification of victimhood, but I'm saying that the person making your life miserable probably has their fair share of misery somewhere back of you. And if you could understand that God sees that pain and is working at it, you could endure your private suffering in a way that has a bigger context and a broader meaning. Th- does that make some sense to you? I also think that in your suffering under unjust punishment, another way you could be conscious of God is to realize that so often God's ways are not our ways. Isn't that true? I mean, how many times have you heard a sermon and you realize God doesn't think the way I think? Intuition and instinct are very different for God than they are to me. In fact, as I write sermons, I'm surprised at how many times I say to myself, Wow, I can't say that. Nobody thinks like this. But God thinks like this. And somehow, when you start thinking like God, in the most strange way, life starts working. I see so many people not living God's way and bumping into the same brick wall and wondering why they have such a headache. But when you begin thinking in God's counterintuitive ways, it's remarkable how somehow things start clicking and life works. And if you're like me, injustice makes you want to lash out and fight. 
How many of you have this crusader instinct in you? I mean, I think it's a God thing. Anybody? Get your blood circulating. Raise your hand. If you're one of those people, when you see someone getting beat up, even if you're late to a meeting, you're like, hold up a second. That cannot stand. I got I to gotta pause for a moment. Ma'am, is this man bothering you? How many of you guys are one of those, ladies, this man bothering you kind of guys, right? I love those kind of guys. We need to be people like that who take the time to stand for justice. But there is a time when we are supposed to fight, and there's a time when we're supposed to suffer. And, and it's not a perfect rule, but one of the rules of thumb is when, you, when you're fighting against systemic injustice and you're fighting for the, the cause of right for others, there seems that God warrants a certain level of moral indignation and in fighting. But when you're fighting just because you're ticked off and you're disrespected and you're personally offended, more often than not, it seems that it's God's will that you swallow your pride and learn the humility of Christ through that very situation. Listen. Peter rightly ties this teaching to what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He says, to this you were called because Christ died for you and and left you an example that you should follow in his steps. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus taught you not just what you're supposed to do, but how you do it meekly, without fighting back, without standing up for your rights and defending yourself. Because somehow, in a most counterintuitive way, in God's kingdom... Great power is exerted through meekness. Now, no one in the world understands that, and 90% of the people in the church don't understand that. But the way it works in God's economy is that some of the most powerful expressions of strength are given through meekness. Think about what the cross represents. It is the ultimate illustration that the greatest show of power that God ever displayed came through an act of quietly accepting an unjust death, like a lamb led to its slaughter. Don't just gloss over that because it's familiar. The strongest and most powerful thing God ever did on the earth, he did by dying, not by fighting. And through that meekness, in the mystery of God's kingdom and economy, something amazing happened for all of us who heard the gospel and believed. We were set free. And don't just skim over the words of verses 22 to 23. Do you know how monstrously difficult it is to live this way? When you're pressed up against the wall, isn't it so easy to sin and justify your sin because you are now a victim too? And yet it says Jesus did not sin in the midst of all that persecution. And it's also easy to bend the truth, to be very deceitful when you're under pressure. But he says he, would, he didn't even lie. He held his tongue. When they hurled their insults at him, I mean, think about how it must have been to be the all-powerful living God trapped in human flesh. And they're going, if you're such a great king, why don't you come down from there? He's like, don't make me come down there. Man, if I were Jesus, I would have just been like, you right there, the big mouth. Just one little object lesson. <laughs> Lightning, pow! The guy's a pile of dust. Just one little thing to scratch that itch of injustice. I would have done it. I would have taken out at least one soldier. He doesn't even do that. How hard would it be to know you have all strength and all power and just keep your mouth shut when they're insulting you? To suffer and make no threats. And if anyone could ever have made threats that that he could back up, it is the Son of God. But he didn't. 
That, to me, is one of the most remarkable things about the crucifixion and passion of Christ, is that he endured it in a way that I just can't imagine I ever could. And yet Peter boldly says, this is, in fact, the pattern of Christ for all of us when we find ourselves in a similar situation of frustration and unjust suffering. Endure it, because it is the will of God for you that you should learn the power that comes through patient and quiet suffering. You know what it says also? That he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I think we can be inspired by this teaching, but in truth, when the rubber hits the road, one of the reasons we won't pull through on this is because we're afraid that if I yield to the unjust people of this world, they will never get their justice. They will never learn their lesson. They'll just move on from me, assuming that I was weak, they were strong, they got the the upper hand, and they'll just keep on barreling ahead, unchecked, and who will do anything about them? And God says, do you feel like I'm asleep at the wheel? Do you think I don't pay attention to the earth beneath my feet? Do you think that I'm somehow oblivious to the little dramas that mark your life? God sees it all. And what he says to you is, you can make your own justice if you want to try. You can mistrust me, take matters into your own hands. You could become Batman, a rogue vigilante who says, no one will take care of this if I don't take care of this. And you could try to make everything wrong right in this world. And you will fail. And along the way, you will become the very thing you fear. But if you trust God, who has perfect justice and all power, you will find great significance in your patient suffering. Because this God does not let injustice slide. He has a better memory than you. He has a more finely tuned sense of justice. And a day will come upon this earth and upon this whole universe where justice will be had. It may not come in this lifetime, but it most definitely will come. And for those who fall under that justice of God, it will not be a happy day. Now, I'm not appealing to your sense of vindictiveness and bitterness. I'm saying to you, God will have his day. And it's a testament to our American jadedness that when I say God will have justice someday, it sounds like such a cheap consolation prize. Oh, that stinks. I wanted my justice now. I wanted to see them grovel now. I don't want to enjoy it later. I want to see it today. But do you realize what, an, what a powerful statement Peter is making? That you can trust God because God is perfectly just. In fact, he is more just than you or I. And if you will trust him, things will eventually work out so that justice is lifted up and injustice is brought down. He says later on in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. You know what he's saying there? That at the cross of Jesus Christ, God already took care of you. He purchased for you the freedom so that you can now afford to ask different questions. You know, when you're insecure, when you're outside of the salvation of Christ, you're always fighting for your rights. You're always indignant. You're always insecure. You're like, hey, no one's going to treat me this way. i got to fight, 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 because no one ever fights for me. But at the cross, God fought for you. 
He fought a battle you couldn't fight and he won for you. He took care of you for eternity. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to validate yourself anymore, justify yourself anymore. He paid everything. He took care of you. And now you can afford to say, who else stands to gain through this suffering? You can get over what you're enduring because God already took care of you forever. You can ask a whole different set of questions that are packed with power. You could be that gracious sufferer who says, is it possible that this unjust suffering is part of God's unfolding plan to break the heart of my obstinate boss who is so far away from God that he's losing his soul. And if I will get out of God's way, God will reach this person someday. Could it be that you can now finally afford to look at the situation through that lens because God already took care of you? Now, a lot of you are practical, so I'm going to wrap up by telling you, what does this mean practically? What am I supposed to do with all of this? I could give a million things, but I won't. Because I, you know, I've got this little timer now, and I'm seeing how long I preach, and I'm working hard to shorten my time. So I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to overextend my welcome and lose you in, in all of this. So I'm going to give you one big practical implication of this to take home. Are you with me? Perk up, wake up just for this one last bit, and take this home and chew on it. I think one of the practical implications of this teaching is that when you're in a tough spot, especially when it involves injustice and suffering, one thing God wants you and, I, you and me to learn is to stay the course. To learn how to hang in there. And can I just say this to you? We Americans are notoriously poor at hanging in there. It's not something we do well. I read a, a, a survey that was put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It was a very fascinating statistic. They did a longitudinal study over time with a group of baby boomers. They watched them over the, the majority of their lives. And listen to this. They said between the ages of 18 to 36, the average baby boomer changed jobs 10 times in 18 years. 10 times in 18 years. We stink at staying put. Do you know how many people I know already that I began ministry with and they're in their fourth or fifth church? If the pastors are that mobile, is it any wonder we're constantly moving like Goldilocks from bed to bed and porridge to porridge, wondering when we're going to find the one that's perfect for me? Can I just, I want to do the survey, not, not to embarrass you, but I just am so curious. How many of you are still on the first real job you had after you got out of college or out of high school? Okay, that's great. Good on you. Some of you are like, I just graduated yesterday, so um, still remains to be seen. Yes. How many of you are on your second job? Keep raising your hand. Third job. Fourth job. Fifth job. Okay, I'm going to let you lower your hands because you're going to embarrass yourself at this point. I'm just kidding. But listen, as a generation, we are extremely mobile. For different reasons, right? Sometimes it's because there's upward mobility and we smell a better, greener pasture ahead. But other times it's just because we're ticked off where we are. And you know what it is that's so uniquely American? There's no sense of resignation or fatalism in America, is there? In most other cultures, there's this idea, well, what are you going to do? But the American spirit is, I'm going to do something. I don't care who i got to kill. We can do something about everything. Every situation is fixable, changeable, replaceable, disposable. 
That is the American psyche. That is how we've been raised to think is we always have an option. And that's why long before we ever learn perseverance and endurance, we just move on. We change the channel, change the scenery, and maybe it'll change me. But it never really does, does it? So much of the best work of God is taught to us in the school of hard knocks and long-suffering. But as American followers of Christ, many of us short-circuit that process by bailing and hitting the eject button whenever things get uncomfortable or difficult or troubling. Listen, I once met a guy in an airport who flew F-16 or F-18 Hornets. Now, I know if you're an aviation buff, you know that that's an F-15 Strike Eagle. Wrong plane, but I had to use this picture once in my ministry career because that is the coolest picture I've ever seen. I met this guy in an airport. We were just lounging around talking. He flew out of Pensacola, Florida. He flew F-18s for the Navy. And I, I was always into jet fighters. So we just kicked up a conversation. I was interviewing this guy. And one of the things that I was always fascinated with is, listen, the F-18 is a $28 million jet. Don't ask me how I knew that, but I was a nerd. How do you decide when it's time to bail out? you got all your instruments blaring, and everything feels wrong, you're about to black out. At some point, the pilot has to be trained to know, when do you pull that ejection seat, ignition switch? How do you pull that? Because when you do it, it's a $28 million decision that a review board is going to hold you responsible for. And he looked right at him, he goes, he, he had aviator glasses on, so stereotypically, he goes, you just better be dang sure of yourself. <laughs> now, he used a little more military-grade language in saying that, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I'm a preacher. He said, you better be pretty doggone sure of yourself before you pull that button. You know what he's saying? He's saying that if you're a wise person, you try to salvage it until you know it's unsalvageable. You hang in there even if you're deathly afraid for your life because every decision costs a great deal and for some people it costs more than they realize and every one of us will be held accountable for the decisions of our lives. You know, in America, every career decision is just that. It's, it's just a career decision. It's no big deal. It's just a company, just a job, another tick on my resume. What's the big deal? What does that have to do with my walk with Jesus Christ? What does that have to do with faith? I think we're learning that it has everything to do with faith. Because the reason so many of us change jobs is simply because we can't take it anymore where we are. Now, listen, I'm not saying you never get to bail, okay? I'm not saying you are stuck forever where you are. Here's what I'm saying. Before you pull that $28 million switch, there better well have been some anguish and struggle between you and the Lord. And not just viewed through the, the narrow lens of how happy am I, how much more can I take. That's a very tired and boring question to rehearse over and over because it's only going to be the same answer every time. I can't take much more of this. I got news for you. You're going to come up with that answer every single time just like I do. But when you zoom out and you become conscious of God, you start asking different questions. And you need to ask those questions before you bail. You need to say, God, what else is really going on here? Who else is really the star of this scene in my story? Maybe this drama has nothing to do with me, but you're trying to save somebody else. And maybe I need to just shut up and get out of your way for a while. Maybe I need to learn the spirit of Jesus and just bite my tongue 
and learn to endure because as I get out of your way, you're going to do something glorious in someone else's life. Maybe it's time for us as the followers of Jesus to learn that you don't always have to fight by swinging fists. Sometimes you fight by going to a cross. And when you show that kind of quiet and silent strength, well, then God shows up in a big way. And he does things that the world cannot explain. You know, this is a very un-American message. This is an American message. This is built into our DNA. It's our nation's history. Don't tread on me. Replace the word tread with what other strong-sounding verb you'd like. Okay? You understand what we're saying. The spirit of this nation is that you mess with me, you're going to taste the knuckle sandwich with extra special sauce, right? That's what's going to happen to you. And I get that. And in some part, that's what makes America great. We are not afraid to fight our own fights or everybody else's fight. (laughs) But you know what? Sometimes we just got to shut up and let God fight for us. And you might just be in exactly that situation today, groaning under a terrible situation, and God says to you, hang in there with me a little bit. I might just change you, but maybe there's a bigger story here than just you. Partner with me. Be conscious of me, God says, and I might do something through this that will make you stare in wonder at what God does. Could that just be possible in your situation? And when you've prayed through it and when you've wrestled, God will eventually give you a release. He may say to you, it's time, child. Pull the lever. Fly into the sky blue. Bail for safety. But until God releases you, I am utterly convicted. We should stay where he puts us until he himself moves us on. I think that's one of the greatest rules of thumb for us is move when God moves you. That, to me, is what it means to take seriously that God is in charge here. That shouldn't just be rhetoric. We shouldn't tell God he's in charge and act like we are. But if we believe that, then we stay where we are until he moves us. Amen? And while we stay, he works and he fights and he acts. And I hope that will bless you and challenge you, especially if you came here expecting a really routine, run-of-the-mill message that says, would you just be a good, faithful worker bee? Don't steal staplers from your office and all that. Yes, all that, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's so much more going on in this text than just go to work on time. I think it's about how to suffer injustice for the glory of God. And I pray that we as a church will learn that day by day. Why don't we bow for prayer? You know, I'm so proud and thankful to be an American, and I love so much of what growing up in this nation has instilled in my instinct, in my heart. But as with every nationality, being American has areas that really challenge us in also being Christians. We're not good at getting out of the way and swallowing our pride. We're not good at sometimes letting God do the fighting for us. 
Sometimes we just assume that everything is disposable and replaceable and fixable. When in fact, some things are just meant to be endured because God has a plan for it. And if you are in a difficult situation, then it may just be that God's word for you this morning is simple. Hang on, child, for you know that I love you and I'm in control here. Somehow through this, I will do things that are marvelous. Hang on and trust me. I'll tell you when it's time to move on. We leave our marriages, our community groups, our companies, like it's just the the most casual decision. I'm not happy anymore. I don't like where things are going. And we just bail. And we don't see what God will do if we just stick it out. Some of the greatest glory of God is found in hanging in. If that's you, pray that God will show his strength by allowing you to remain and hang in there. And if that isn't you, would you pray quietly for those around you who are going through that right now? Add your prayers to theirs. Let's pray for a minute or two. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we just admit in humility that this is a hard teaching. And yet, who but you would have the right to ask anyone else to endure unjust suffering? And who besides you would have the power to make anything good come out of it? Humble us and break us before the example of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's good that you've made us fighters, but teach us also to bear the cross and to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ, our great example. May some of the greatest victories in our lives come because we have endured and you have fought for us. And Lord, I just pray that through the suffering, the righteous and unjust suffering of many at Harvest Community Church, the lives of others would be touched by the love of God. That we would get out of your way and you would reach those you've been chasing for years and years. And may the name of Jesus be lifted up as many such people, wounded and tormenting others, are broken before the cross of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.